Before we uh, dive into our scripture this morning, let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we pray uh, above all else that you would give us uh, a teachable heart and a teachable mind this morning as we, we talk this morning about a very difficult topic. God, would you help us to hear? And Lord, I pray most importantly, would you give us uh, your compassion and your love, uh, especially as we talk about something so difficult, Lord. It can be so easy to talk about it in a callous way or a cold way. God, far be that from us. I pray that we would talk about it with the deepest sympathies and with the heart of Jesus himself. And we pray in his name, amen. <clears throat> if you have your Bible, we're gonna be reading from Luke chapter 16 this morning. This is a parable given by Jesus to his disciples and some opponents. This is Luke chapter 16, beginning in verse 19. This is the word of God. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I'm in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. He said to him, if they did not hear Moses and the prophets, Neither will they be convinced if someone should raise from the dead. It's the word of God. Well, if you're just joining this week, uh, we are continuing on in a two-part series on eternal life. And if you were with me last week, then I tried to convince you that this topic, eternal life, is the central message of Jesus that above all else, what Jesus is concerned about and what Jesus would have us to hear is that eternal life is a reality and he wants us to know about it. The question, what happens when we die for Jesus is of the utmost importance. Now, last week we talked about heaven and if you weren't here for that, I would commend that to you and I would ask that you would go back and listen to that message. You can find it on our podcast or you can actually view it on YouTube as well. And this week, we're talking about another reality that Jesus talked about and one that's very difficult to talk about it's the, and it's the topic of hell. Now it's safe to say the, the Christian teaching on hell is, is probably the most unpopular teaching throughout the world today. Tim Keller in a New York Times bestselling book, Tim Keller is a pastor and a Christian thinker, put it this way, in our culture, Divine judgment and hell are two of Christianity's most offensive doctrines. John Stott as well, he was a pastor in the UK back in the 20th century. He said that no person, no person should talk about hell without tears in their eyes. And, and in, in fact, this, this isn't just an unpopular topic today. This doctrine, this teaching, what Jesus talked about so frequently and so often about is undoubtedly the most divisive and difficult doctrine that anyone has ever talked about. 
So why then do we talk about it, right? If, it, if it's so difficult and, and it causes so much controversy and strife, then, then why do we talk about it? Well, the, the short answer to that is because Jesus did. Jesus talked about hell. In fact, Jesus talked about hell more than any other author of a book of a Bible combined. If you were to take all of the biblical authors and pool together what they said about hell, it would not equal what Jesus said about hell. Jesus, in fact, as one writer put it, the son of God was the great theologian of hell. And, and we gotta ask, right? Because even, even the mention of hell makes us uncomfortable, doesn't it? Just even the mention, even the word itself carries such connotations to it. It draws up images and assumptions. And for many of us, just revulsion. We, we hear it and we don't even want to think about it. We want to, we want to broach past the subject and we never want to think about it again. And because of our strong, that, that gut reaction, what we often fail to do is, is we fail to ask questions. We fail to ask the very questions that Jesus would have us ask. And that's precisely what I want to do this morning. I want to ask the questions. One writer said that the Christian doctrine of hell is single-handedly the biggest barrier to belief in Jesus. So, so if that's the case, if this is a barrier to belief, if that's the case, then what I wanna do is I wanna ask those questions and I want us together this morning to look at these questions and explore exactly what scripture says about hell. So that's what we're gonna do this morning. We're gonna ask three questions, three of the most common questions people have about hell, and then after asking those questions, we're gonna offer a response and look at scripture and see what scripture has to say about it. So let's look at them in turn. First question, and this is maybe the most frequently asked question that people have about hell, and it goes something like this. It is, how can a God of love also be a God of judgment? How can a God of love also be a God of judgment? Michael Shermer, he's the uh, founding publisher and writer in what's known as Skeptic Magazine, and the title kind of gives it away, gives you his viewpoint. He is a skeptic. And he, he approaches this subject and here's what he has to say about it. In a recent interview, he said this, in my opinion, any God worthy of the title of omniscient, omnipotent, and all loving surely wouldn't care whether I believe in him or not. Whatever justice system God has set up, it can't be just carrot and stick, heaven and hell. That is just so primitive. Personally, I can't believe that a good God an all-powerful and loving God would do anything bad to me for just trying my best. And, and it's not just skeptics either, right? It's not just people out there that have those questions. It, it's us too, right? People inside the church have these questions. Followers of Jesus have these questions. If you, if you wanna know what pastors do for fun, by the way, this is what we do. Recently, I went to a Christian uh, radio station website, right? And I pulled up a lyrics page and you can search across all the lyrics of all contemporary Christian songs. And so my curiosity got the best of me. I just started typing in words and see how many times they showed up. So I type in, the first word I type in is love. And can you guess how many responses, how many lyrics mentioned love in them? Somebody said over a thousand in the first service. A million. A million. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that's probably pretty right because this was just the contemporary ones and there were 744 mentions of the word love. So that got my curiosity rolling. So I typed in wrath. Guess how many showed up? Four. Judgment, four. Anger, seven. So you see, it doesn't matter where you fall on the spectrum, right? Whether you are a skeptic, and maybe that's you this morning, or maybe you're a follower of Jesus, one thing is clear, the idea of God's judgment and wrath is not a pleasant or popular image today. So, so how do we respond? How do we respond to this? Well, let, let's start here. Here's what I want you to consider. Think just on a human level, right? Just on a human level, we all recognize that justice and judgment are good things. In fact, I would say we love justice and judgment. When you are driving on C470 in the left-hand lane and somebody passes you going 20 miles an hour over the speed limit in the right lane, you either do one of two things. 
right? You slow down and try and get in the right lane slowly so that they have to pay the price for busting the speed limit, right? That's me. Or you let them pass you and you just hope and you pray, God, if there is any justice in this world, pull that guy over, right? One of, you're one of those two, right? And we all love, we love justice. We love judgment. Or when we hear stories of celebrities bribing colleges for children's admission, we think, man, that just is something not right. There's something not right with the world. So we all have a sense of justice, right? And we all recognize that justice and judgment are good things. And, and that's not all, right? Because we all also recognize that any just and good and loving judge is precisely a God who does not overlook evil or overlook wrongdoing, but is a God who punishes it. So think with me for a minute. Imagine a 26-year-old is convicted of murder and he's going to stand trial or he's charged with murder and he's going to stand for trial and prosecution gives their their, their case, defense gives their case, and it goes back and forth for several months. And then at the end of it, it is just crystal clear. This guy did it. This guy murdered this person. And I want you to imagine for a moment that that same judge then looks at the, at the man who, who had committed murder and he says, okay, I recognize for 20, in your 26th year, you murdered somebody. But I also went and I dig back into your life and I noticed For the first 25 years of your life, you didn't commit any murders. So here's the thing. Your good deeds outweigh your bad. Therefore, you are exonerated and you're forgiven. See, we would look, we would look at a judge like that and we would not call him a good and loving judge, but a corrupt and a bad judge. We all recognize that. The judge who winks in the face of wrongdoing and evil is not a good judge. He's a wicked one. See, when God reveals himself in scripture, he, he doesn't force us to choose between God who is good and loving versus God who is punishing and judgmental. God doesn't force us to choose between that. It's not either or, but it's both and. Maybe the best description of God comes from the book of Exodus. And if you remember this story, Moses, he's asked to see God. And, and God said, I, I can't show you who I am, but I will come and I will reveal yourself, my, myself to you. And listen to how God describes himself. This is from Exodus chapter 34. The Lord passed before him, that's Moses, and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. See, God doesn't say it's, it's either or, either a good God or a just God. God is a good God and a loving and just God. God is good, loving, just, and righteous. So, so the question is why? why? Why if we acknowledge that justice is a good thing and why if we acknowledge that we all would want a good and just judge, do we have such a problem with this idea of punishment? Why? What, what, what causes that reaction in us? Well, I sometimes wonder, would it be different if we didn't live where we lived? If we didn't live in the United States or in the West in much affluence, would that change anything about how we view this question? And it's interesting, there's a man by the name of Miroslav Volf. Volf is a Croatian, and he's also a theologian and a philosopher at Yale University. And if you know anything about Croatia, during the mid-90s, there was a mass genocide during the Balkan War. And Volf witnessed in the Balkan War this very mass genocide. And he believes that our difficulty with the idea of God, the one who judges and punishes, is precisely because we, as people in the West, haven't actually seen our need for it. So Wolf said this, if God were not angry at injustice, if God did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. A belief in divine vengeance will not be popular with many in the West. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the idea that human nonviolence 
will result in God's refusal to judge. Now that's a mouthful, so let me explain what he was saying there. What Wolf was saying is that in the West, in an affluent country like our own, like the United States, it's easy for us to say, we want a God of pure love, but not a God of wrath. We want a God of pure love, not a God of anger, a God of pure love, but not of justice. But what he's saying is once you've experienced the brutality of genocide, or had your town burned to the ground, or had your family kidnapped from your very arms, you realize the only good and loving thing for God to do would be to bring justice, not to wink at it or let it go unpunished. And, and he says, maybe that's the reason we don't view God's justice and judgment as a good thing. See, for, for a man like Wolf, for a man who was on the side of the oppressed, for a man who was on the side of injustice and on the side of the offended, his only hope is in a God who will one day bring justice and judgment and bring punishment. That is his only hope. Who will one day by no means clear the guilty. And, and maybe we need to consider this then, right? Maybe we need to consider that God is just and renders judgment and punishment, not because he is hateful, but because he is loving. Here's, here's, what, I want you to, here's what I want you to consider. Consider God's judgment flows from his love, not in spite of it. Let me say that again. God's judgment flows from his love, not in spite of it. And, and think of your own life, right? Isn't the thing that makes you most angry when you see someone you love or something that you love being threatened? I, I think of my own case. I, I have a daughter. She's two years old. Her name's McLean. We call her Lainey. And Lainey is two things, if she's nothing else. She is strong-willed and she is brave which is a deadly combination. She is strong-willed, so she often refuses to hold my hand because we have a rule in our household. Hey, when we are walking through a parking lot, you hold daddy's hand. And she's also brave, so she does not fear oncoming traffic. <laughs> and, and my response, right, it's not indifference. It's not, McLean, YOLO, you only live once. Go ahead, you be you. <laughs> no. <laughs> By the way, I was told YOLO's out already. So, or if you don't know what YOLO is, don't worry, it's gone. <laughs> so see, right, but think with me, your natural response is not indifference, it's anger. McLean, do not run in the middle of the street. McLean, I love you. Laney, listen to me. Where you are going is destructive. I don't want anything bad to happen to you. Stop. Anger. See, I get angry when I see someone I love putting themselves in danger. And I imagine the same thing is true about you. When you see someone that you love is threatened, it gives rise to a righteous and loving anger. And see, God is the same way. God is the same way. God sees us, his children, walking in ways that are destructive, walking away from relationship with him, walking in rebellion against him. And in turn, he expresses loving anger. When he sees creatures that he's made being destroyed by their own strong-willed bravery and indifference toward him. So let me ask you, if that's true, then why do we have such a problem with judgment, anger, and the wrath of God? Well, if you're anything like me, Often when I examine my own heart, when I think of what, what do I truly want when I say I want a God of love, when I say I want that, oftentimes what I'm really saying is that I want a God who never really challenges me. I, I want a God who never really contradicts me, who never tells me I'm in the wrong, who never holds me to a standard and by no means looks at my sin and tells me that I have to change it. Rebecca Pippert She's an author. She put it this way. She put it perfectly. Think how we feel when someone we see that we love is ravaged by unwise actions or relationships. Do we respond with benign intolerance as we might towards strangers? She says, far from it. She says, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. See, when I'm honest with myself, that's what I really want. When, when I say I want a God of love, what I'm really saying is I want a God of indifference. I want a God 
who will never look at me and challenge me. I want a God who overlooks me, a God who overlooks my actions, who is indifferent to my sin, who never challenges me or asks me to change. But don't you see, that is not a form of love. That is indifference and toleration. And ultimately, indifference is the final form of hate. So, so which God do we want? I wanna ask you, what God do you want? See, if we're honest, then when we say we want a God of love, isn't it often the case that we want a God who will just overlook us, who will be indifferent to us, who will let us just live our own lives for a minute? Which God do you want? Or do you want a God who is loving you, who is looking at the path that you're walking and is saying, you are on a dangerous road. Turn back, turn back to me. See, I know my wife Hannah loves me because she gets angry at me. My wife is a compassionate woman. So when she sees me being a jerk to other people, she righteously gets angry at me and tells me, Daniel, you are better than that. Daniel, you are more loving than that. Hannah gets angry at me because she loves me. Sometimes. <laughs> Not all the times. It's good that I have you laughing, by the way. Why should we expect God to be any different? See, if God loves us, wouldn't we expect him to also challenge us and to get angry when he sees us destroying ourselves? Which God do you want? Which God do you want? Okay, so granted, right? God's love and his justice are not opposed to one another and God's judgment and anger and wrath flow from his love to the world, not in spite of it. So that leads to another question. And the question goes something like this. Hell, hell, that seems a little extreme, right? After all, does the punishment of hell really fit the crime? And the question sounds something like this. We all live one finite life. And is scripture really saying that we are to spend an eternity in hell? Just for one finite life. An eternity for just one finite life. The punishment doesn't seem to fit the crime. And that's a great question. In fact, if, if it's probably one of the most common questions that when I have this discussion with people, they bring up. And what I wanna point out to you though, is that behind that question is an assumption. Behind that question is an assumption about how we actually, or, or what we view hell as, what we actually think hell is, and how God sends people there. Tim Keller, again, he explains this really well. He says, modern people, inevitably think about hell and that it works like this. God gives us time. He gives us this finite life. But if by the end of that life, we haven't made the right choices, he casts our souls into hell for all eternity. And as the poor souls cry out for mercy, God says, too late, you had your chance, now you will suffer. So what's wrong with this picture? What's wrong with this picture? Well, first and foremost, it fails to show us the biblical view of sin. See, sin in the Bible, the greatest tragedy of sin in the Bible is not that we do things wrong, although that is the case. We do many things wrong. No, the greatest tragedy of sin in the Bible is that it is separation from a relationship with God. It is separation from God. God is good and loving and just and holy and righteous and kind and merciful. And to sin is to tell God, God, we do not want any of that. We want to go in an opposite direction. You, you can think of it this way. Imagine with me that there's just a large circle here around me. And in that circle is reigning God's love and his goodness and his kindness and his joy. See, what sin is, is saying, God, I no longer want to be in that circle. I want to come over here. I want what's over here. I know what's best for my life. I want this. See, sin is not just doing wrong things. It is actually separation. It is cutting ourselves off, ourselves off from the God who loves us and wants to give us good blessings and good things. And in fact, when the Apostle Paul, one of Jesus' earliest followers, described hell, that's precisely how he described it. He described it as separation from God. He wrote this letter to a group of churches in the area of Thessalonica. This is 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, talking about hell 
and the people in it, he says, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might, away from the presence of the good and loving God and creator of the universe. That is hell, to be away from the presence of the Lord. So, so what does that actually look like? Well, Jesus said it works kind of this way. Jesus often used the image of a road, right? And Jesus said there are two paths, two paths, two roads. And he said, one path leads to eternal life. And, and it, it, is, it is gained by following Jesus and being in the presence of Jesus. And then there is another path. It's a path that leads to destruction away from the presence of Jesus. So now you have to ask yourself the question, right? If when we die, we do not end, but our life extends into eternity, then what is hell? Hell is our chosen path of life apart from God played out for an eternity. Let me say that again. Hell is our chosen path of life apart from God played out over eternity. Hell is a person for eternity, not following God, but following themselves. Hell is a person for eternity, not submitting to God, but insisting on personal freedom and self-fulfillment. Hell is a person not acknowledging the truth of God, but defining truth and error, right and wrong for themselves. So see, hell is not God casting people into hell against their will. No, hell is God giving a person what they ultimately want, which is a life lived apart from God and an eternity separated from his love, peace, joy, kindness, mercy, and grace. See, think about it. Think about it, right? The most common descriptions, you know, the two most common descriptions that Jesus gives of hell are darkness and fire. And why does he use that imagery? What does darkness suggest? Darkness suggests isolation, loneliness, self-absorption, and fire too. What does fire do? When you take a log and you put it on fire, what does it do to the log? It makes it disintegrate. It disintegrates it from what it was created to be into something less than itself, ash. Eternal fire suggests that we are becoming more and more and more disintegrated from how God made us. We were made creatures who were made to relate to God in his love and in his kindness and also relate to others. Eternal fire suggests we are disintegrating, becoming more and more and more self-focused, self-centered, self-concerned, and self-absorbed. That's why Fedor Dostoevsky the Russian novelist described hell as the desire to love, but the inability to do so. And Jesus' parable in Luke 16 actually gives us this vision, doesn't it? It actually supports this view of hell. See, remember there are two men, right? There are two men. We're told that there's a rich man and a poor man. A man who in this life, this rich man, who had pursued everything that he wanted in this life, he defined the terms himself. He wanted riches and he pursued them. We're told that he feasted sumptuously every day. He wore purple, which was the most expensive color and garment that you could afford. And ultimately he had thanksgiving every single night. But then we're told about this poor man who would even desire just to eat the crumbs from the poor, rich man's table. And if you're, you're a close observer of the Bible, if you've read a lot of Jesus' parables, this is the only parable where a person is named. And it's the poor man. His name is Lazarus, which literally means God is my help. Here is a man who is dependent on the help and the presence of God. And these two men die. And we're told as they die, the rich man who had everything in this life, had everything his heart desired, everything his self wanted, he goes down to Hades. While the poor man who built his life on the help and grace of God goes to heaven. And notice what happens to the rich man. The rich man cries out in verse 22. Says this, the rich man 
who died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off at Lazarus' side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue. For I am in anguish in this, in this flame. Tim Keller gives a, a phenomenal highlighting of the irony in this passage. He says, notice, isn't it ironic that even though the rich man is in hell, he still expects Lazarus to be his servant. He still expects Lazarus. Hey, hey, send Lazarus. Tell him to come down here to me and dip his finger in water and cool my tongue. Can't, can't you see I'm in anguish? And his name hasn't changed either, has it? He's still just the rich man. See, he's called the rich man. His chosen path of life in pursuing riches on earth has been extended out into eternity. And, and let me be clear here, in the Bible, wealth, money, or anything for that matter, is not bad in and of itself. It is not bad in and of itself, but here is a danger. When you seek to build your life on anything that is not God, the Bible says that that thing whatever it is, will ultimately lead you to separation from God. It's dangerous because whatever you build your life on upon that is not God makes you believe the lie that you can do without God, that God is not your helper. But this is maybe the most striking part of the whole story. See, he asked to be served by Lazarus. He asks that his family be warned by Lazarus. That's later on in verse 27. But isn't it interesting or tragic that he never asks to leave? He never asks to leave the torment that he's in. He has the ear of Abraham and he doesn't ask to leave. But you say, no, still, okay, but I still, I can never believe in a God who would countenance hell. I can never believe in a God who would actually allow a hell to exist. Don't you see, that is precisely the problem. That is precisely the problem. You refuse to believe and follow a God unless it's on your own terms, unless God conforms to you. You refuse to believe or submit to anyone or anything that isn't you. If you want your definition of God, your way of life, your standard of right and wrong, a world and a reality defined exclusively by you, that is hell. C.S. Lewis, the children's author, put it this way. There are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Jesus in this parable is showing us that the choice, this, this is not the choice, right? I was running the other day, I saw a leaflet on the ground and it said, heaven or hell, make your choice. That is not the, that is not the choice. It is not a choice between heaven and hell. It's not a choice between God or the devil. No, Jesus is telling us that the choice is this. It always has been this. The choice forever since the beginning of time has always been this. It is a choice between Jesus or you. Thy will be done or thy will be done. This makes me think of a story I heard recently, the story of a woman named Deb. Deb uh, grew up in South Africa. She said she grew up as a, in a fairly typical household. She had never really felt like the shiny, bright, happy kids that she, that she saw around her. And she says, I always remember feeling that this planet wasn't my home, that somehow I'd been dropped into the wrong family. I was deeply insecure. At the same time, I had an adventurous spirit and liked to push the boundaries. My motto was, never say no, try everything once, sleep when you're dead. That's mine too. <laughs> She said, soon things began to derail. Deb turned 30 and she had just come back from working abroad for a couple of years. 
Deb quickly got into a relationship with a guy who was involved in heroin. <coughs> Eventually, he persuaded her to try it, and it didn't take long for her to develop an addiction. Deb eventually lost her two freelance job and jobs and most of her friends. After several months of attempts at sobriety and total misery, Deb returned to work in Cape Town, but the first thing she did when she got there was to call her dealer. And as she was waiting for him to arrive to her house, she said she stumbled across a blue New Testament. And what she read shocked her. I was just flicking through, but wherever I saw, I saw condemnation. I didn't see anything about a God of love. I didn't see anything about acceptance. And the thing was, I already knew I had done bad things with the heroin. I knew that it was bad on a social and family level, but it really dawned on me when I read how deeply I had sinned against God. And see, Deb, after reflection and after that incident, by God's grace, became a follower of Jesus. And now it's more remarkable that when she looks back and reflects, she says this, I was, it was like I was in the deepest and darkest place. I felt like I was lying beyond where even God could reach. It really was a sense of the outermost, just loneliness and unreachableness. Now, as I look back, I realize it wasn't the heroin that got me in trouble. The problem was my heart, which insisted that God was of no account and that I could live my life however I wanted. Before I went near any substances, I was just an ugly a person on the inside as I had become on the outside. I was guilty of selfishness. I organized my entire universe to suit myself. So in a sense, the outer problem of a drug addiction was easier to deal with than the inner problem. That attitude which is hard toward God and puts itself first. That's an offense of God because he made us and he loves us and wants a relationship with us. See, Deb saw it clearly. Deb, Deb sees this clearly that the choice, see the choice for Deb wasn't heroin or heaven. The choice was always Deb, her life, her way, or God's. It was Jesus, your will be done. Or Deb, your will be done. Who, who are you living for? See, here's the thing. We are all building our life on something. We are all on a path. And Jesus says, consider this. In the end, it will come down to this question. Thy will be done or thy will be done. So you've been patient with me. Thank you. That brings us to our final question. So we've seen that a God of love and justice are not opposed to one another. We've also seen that hell is not a place. God is casting people against their will, but hell is the freely chosen path of life apart from God played out over eternity. And our third question is this, what about those who've never heard of Jesus? What about those people who live and die never having heard the gospel or Jesus? What, what happens to them? What happens to those people? Do they go to hell just because of what, where they happen to have been born? What about our friends? What about those people that we know? What about them? Do they go to hell? That just seems wrong. And, and I wanna be clear here. This is clear throughout the Bible, extremely clear, that Jesus does not judge a person on what they do not know. I wanna say that again. Jesus does not judge a person on what they do not know. And, and we have to be clear about this too, that no person, not me, nor any person knows the ultimate fate and destiny of any other person. Nobody can see into the heart of another person. In fact, the only person that's privileged to that information is God himself. So Jesus does not judge us on what we do not know, but only on what we do know. He only judges us on what we do know. So, so what do we know? Well, two things. The first thing is this, that there is an all-powerful God who is creator and judge of creation. We see that in Paul's letter to a church in Rome. This is Romans chapter one, beginning in verse nine, or sorry, verse 19. And he says this, this is the human condition. This is all of us. He said this, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. 
For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So how do we know that there's a God? Well, God has shown it to us. He has made it clearly perceived in the things that have been made. When you look in the world, you know that behind the creation is a creator. We all know that there is an all-powerful God and that this God is our creator to whom we have an account. So we know that. We know that there is a God. But what else do we know? Well, we all know that there is a standard of right and wrong. We all know the difference between right and wrong, evil and good. And we see that again as Paul continues in Romans chapter 2. He puts it this way. He said, for when the Gentiles, that is, those people who did not know God's people or know God's scriptures. He said, when these people even, he said, when the Gentiles who do not have the law, but by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts. In other words, God has inscribed on every individual human heart the difference in the distinction between good and evil. And everybody knows that difference. So will God judge people just because they haven't heard the name of Jesus? The answer is a resounding no. God will judge them based on what they did with the knowledge of him as creator and with the standard of right and wrong that has been written on their heart. But this, this still presents us with a problem, right? I was recently talking to a student at a local university and I'm a nerd, so I was having a conversation with him about, hey, what, what makes a person a good person? And he, he thought that people were basically good people. And I said, okay, so what is your standard between good and bad? And he said, well, a person who doesn't harm others and a person who leaves the world better than they, left, or better than they uh, received it. And so I, I leaned over the table and I said, well, can I ask you, have you lived up to your own standard? And he said, no. See, we don't even measure up to our own standards, let alone the God of the universe. And notice that the rich man asked the very question that we're discussing right now, doesn't he? The rich man asked the same question. He says, what about my brothers, Father Abraham? What about them? Verse 27, and the rich man said, then I beg you, Father, to send them to my father's house, for I have five brothers so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said to him, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they'll repent. He said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, the, the, the thing is, is when we ask the question, what about those who've never heard, we actually miss completely the intent that, that Jesus is, is trying to aim at with this parable. See, see, Jesus told this parable to people, opponents and followers. And he's trying to get us to realize you are hearing the message. You're hearing it now. I'm, tell, I'm telling you that there is a hell I'm telling you right now, you're hearing the message. The question isn't about them, though that is a valid and sincere question. I think we all have to ask it. And it should make us serious about sharing the message. But the question is, what will you do with this information? You are hearing it now. And, and here's maybe the most sobering words that the Bible has to offer. Beginning in verse 30. I'll read it again. And the rich man said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Abraham responds, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. See, the sober truth and reality, according to Jesus, is that if that you won't heed this message about hell, then not even the greatest miracle in the universe will convince you otherwise. There is no miracle in the universe that could convince you. In other words, we so want the doctrine of hell to be untrue that not even the most miraculous thing in the world could convince us. 
But, but we say, well, God, it, God, if you would just show us, right? I've said that before. God, if you would just show us, just prove to me, then of course I'll believe. And Jesus says, no, you, you have all the information and evidence you need. What, what, more, what more could we ask for? Do you need a warning? Here it is. Jesus is telling us there is a hell and he wishes that none should go there. He wishes that none would perish, that all would attain eternal life. Do, do you want proof that Jesus is who he said he was? He did, he, he defeated death. We sang about it earlier that he stepped out of the grave. It's, it's the most verifiable and most well-attested fact in the ancient world that he rose from the dead, that he is who he said he is, that his message is valid, that his message is true and right. But I'm, I'd imagine you want this, this. You'd want this more than anything else. Do you wanna know that Jesus loves you? That is the only thing that's ever gonna make you turn to Jesus. I'm convinced we could talk about how horrible hell is until I'm blue in the face, but nothing will make you turn from it unless you see how beautiful and believable and good Jesus really is. I'm convinced of that. Until you see Jesus as your precious savior, the one you would stake your entire life on and build your entire life on it, you will never turn to him. So do you want proof that Jesus loves you? Is that what you want? Start here, see hell first and foremost, before it is a place of judgment, before it is a place of punishment, and before it is a place of suffering, hell first and foremost is the place to which Jesus was willing to go to demonstrate that he loves you. Hell is the depths to which Jesus was willing to plunge to show you that he loves you and he wants a relationship with you. The earliest Christians, when they were writing out a statement of what they believe, they said this. They said, I believe in God the Father, almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Jesus on the cross descended into the very depths of hell to give us life. One of the greatest biblical interpreters of all time, his name is John Calvin. He said, Jesus's descent into hell was not merely descending into physical death in the grave, but represents the biblical teaching that Jesus suffered all the torments that a soul in hell cut off from God's presence would experience. And he did it on the cross. The cross of Jesus proves that God himself was willing to endure hell so that heaven forbid, you would never have to go there. That's how much he loves you. See, isn't it ironic that we think we can make God more loving by removing hell? When we do that, we remove the very thing God was willing to show us how much he loved us. God loves you. He says there is a hell and he says, heaven forbid that you would ever have to go there. I will go there in your place. Jesus and his anguish on the cross endured it because he loves you. And for no other reason than he loves you. Because of his love for you, he endured the agony of the cross and descended into the very depths of hell, enduring the wrath and punishment and judgment of God for people who are on a completely opposite path, for people who said, I don't even want God. He went to the cross to die for those people, you, me, those kind of people. He loves you. He loves you. Jesus talked so vividly, so painly, plainly, and so frequently about hell because he wanted you to know this, I love you and I gotta get your attention. I promise this, this is my last story. I'm gonna close on this, okay? I got this story from a man named Rankin Wilborn. He tells about this uh, major auto accident that happened in London in the late 80s. And during the morning, there was a very dense fog and a semi-automatic truck rolled over and had crashed on a road and had laid 
across two lanes of traffic. And because of the dense fog and because the warning system for the highways had shut down that morning for maintenance, people were driving into their morning commute into London and they didn't realize what awaited them. The fog was so dense they couldn't even see destruction in their midst. Some 85 people, 85 cars, ended up being wrecked in the accident. And we're told that as first responders arrived and they saw the tragedy, they saw the accident, some of the people felt compelled. In fact, one police officer with tears streaming down his face, trying to stop these people, but they couldn't see him because of the dense fog. And he couldn't stand in the middle of the road because it would mean his own life. What he started to do with tears streaming down his eyes, he starts picking up traffic cones and he's chucking them at oncoming cars, telling them, stop, stop. There is destruction ahead of you. Friends, Jesus is doing that same thing to us this morning. Do you want a message? Here it is. There is a hell. Jesus has given us every indication that there is a hell and he is in fact a just God. But because he loves us, he was willing to endure the wrath and the torment and the separation from God that we deserve. That's why Jesus' last words on the cross you remember him? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus has given himself to you and for you to demonstrate he loves you. There is a hell and he says, God forbid that you would ever go to it. That's the love of God. Let's pray. Father, Lord, you do love us. You so love us that you sent what was most dear and precious to you, your only son, to endure not the agony of physical death, but eternal torment in hell, to be forsaken and cut off that we might have life. God, we praise you that you love us, that you love us enough to tell us this message. God, I pray for those who do not believe in you this morning. I pray that they would heed this message. I pray you, Holy Spirit, would apply it to them. And I pray that they would see one thing going out of here. It is that you love us, that you will that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life, not eternal separation from you. God, we pray that you would do this because you're the only one able to do it. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he's our savior. Thank you that he endured the wrath of the cross in our place. In his name we pray by the power of your spirit. Amen.